Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. All right, I'm going to start in chapter 22, verse 20, 20 for just a moment. Then we'll go back to the beginning of chapter 22. Jesus tells the disciples, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. What we call communion, what we call the Last Supper, uh, the taking of communion, the Eucharist, depending on your transition, uh, tradition, um, is Jesus' inauguration of a new covenant. Now, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. A covenant is an agreement between God and his people that he's chosen. And when God calls his people, he always signifies that call with a covenant or, or, or confirms that covenant with a sign. When he gave, tells Noah that he's no longer going to flood the world any longer, he gives Noah the sign of the rainbow. When God gives Abraham and, and calls Abraham and says, you're going to be my chosen people. I'm going to bless all nations through you. And the sign will be circumcision. And with Moses, he calls Moses up on Mount Sinai and gives him the law and says, this is my covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You obey my laws and I'll bless you as a people. And the sign of the covenant is, that one's more difficult. Ah, I'm testing you. The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a sign of the covenant that God made with Moses. So also, Jesus institutes communion as a sign, as a, a seal of this new covenant. So Luke chapter 22, verse 1, says this. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Jesus, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. The Passover was fast approaching, we're told. The Passover falls on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which usually in a, in a, uh, in a Jewish calendar falls for us around the, uh, the months of March or April. Somewhere March or April. I believe, by the way, Jesus was crucified and, and he rose from the dead on April 7th. So this would put this as the 3rd or 4th of April in the year 30 AD, just in case you wanted to know. Um, now, the Passover was a, um, a, a time which the Israelites commemorated the, their deliverance from Pharaoh, from, from Egyptian bondage, Egyptian slavery. Pharaoh had been killing the firstborn children in, in, uh, amongst the Israelites. If you're familiar with the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments and, and the stories in, in the Exodus movie and modern-day uh, 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 film, uh, the Israelites had, had gone to Egypt and had become enslaved. And that now there were threatens to be millions and potentially a couple million of them. And Pharaoh was worried that there would be so many Israelite people that they would rebel and that Pharaoh couldn't stop them. So Pharaoh said, we're going to slaughter all the firstborn sons of Israel. And he began systematically killing them. So God calls Moses shortly thereafter and says, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to have you lead my people out of Israel, out of Egypt. You're going to go let Pharaoh know. And he let Pharaoh know. And Pharaoh says, no, nah, sorry, that's not going to happen. You're not leaving. So God strikes Egypt with a plague. And Pharaoh says, guess what? You're not leaving. In fact, I'm going to make life worse for you. And God strikes Egypt with a plague. And Pharaoh says, sorry, you're not going to leave. I'm going to make life even worse for you. And on and on and on. So God finally says, oh, guess what? It's called the law of, of an, eye, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you kill the firstborn of my sons, of the sons of Israel, God's going to kill the firstborn of all the sons in Egypt. 
Now, typically when we, we, we read the story as Christians and, and, and uh, read our, our Old Testament story, we, we look at it and we go, well, the Israelites were exempt. Whenever God struck Egypt with a plague, the Israelites were exempt. Well, kind of. In this instance, God tells the Israelites, here's what I'm going to do. The angel of death is going to come to the houses of Egypt and he's going to slay the firstborn sons of Egypt because Pharaoh is slaying the firstborn sons of Israel. However, the angel of death is not going to discriminate houses here. He's not going to go, are you Jewish, or are you an Israelite, or are you not? He's simply going to slaughter the firstborns in all the homes, unless you put blood on the doorpost of your home, and the angel of death will pass over your home. Hence the name Passover. It signifies the time when the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites. So Passover commemorates the deliverance of God's people from oppression in Egypt. Passover, which the Last Supper was a Passover feast, commemorates the deliverance of God's people from oppression in Egypt. Now we're told in Luke 22 that it was the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. The, fest, the feast of Passover is a one-day feast. It happens on the 14th day of Nisan, somewhere around March, April in our calendar. But the very next day, so Passover here, the next day begins the feast of unleavened bread. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day feast. So together, there's one eight-day feast. And oftentimes, in the New Testament, if you're reading the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John especially, you might see a reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread because, you see, they're just going to call this, these two festivals under one name because it's one, like, one big eight-day festival as far as they're concerned, even though biblically it's two festivals. So that's why Luke begins the Festival of Unleavened Bread called the Passover. The festival of unleavened bread, again, commemorates the fact that when God led them out of Egypt, they got out of town quickly. And you've got to go so quickly that when you go to get your food together, you're not going to put any yeast in it because you're not going to have any time for the bread to rise. You've got to leave in haste. So the festival of unleavened bread begins the very next day. Now, at the time, by the way, I believe that we're on Thursday night uh, of Jesus' last couple days of his life. Uh, in the Jewish world, a day begins at sundown. So at 6 p.m., what we call Thursday night, is Friday for them. And that happened to be the 14th of Nisan. So this year, Passover falls on a Friday. So Thursday night, Jesus is gathering his disciples together in this room, and he's now giving what we call the Last Supper with the disciples. Now, the Jewish world, at the time of Jesus, the Jews were required to attend Jerusalem for three festivals. There's seven feasts in the Old Testament law. But they were required to go to Jerusalem for at least three of them. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Now the reality was, it's not always practical, especially as the Jews had become spread from as far as Rome and Spain and uh, Ephesus and Turkey and Greece. Uh, it, it's just simply impractical to get to Jerusalem. It takes two weeks or longer to get there. You can't take two weeks away from work and home and the travel expenses, etc. So many Jews would travel to Jerusalem only for one of the major feasts. And Passover wasn't always the one they would come to, because Passover's in the spring, and the seas aren't open yet. You can't travel from Rome to Jerusalem. You can't get there from Ephesus and Greece uh, and Turkey and these areas. And so, uh, you know, and if the rains are too bad, you might not even come from Galilee up in the north and travel down. So you might come for Pentecost, which is more in the month of June in the summertime. Um, tabernacles, well, that's too close to the fall harvest, and so that's hard economically as well. But nonetheless, the number of people in the, in the city of Jerusalem had expanded because the Jews believed that you're supposed to eat the Passover in the city of Jerusalem. And that presents a problem now. Um, Jerusalem's not big enough. 
The city of Jerusalem, we, we, we suspect, had about 20,000 uh, uh, inhabitants. But there might have been as many as 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem for this particular Passover. So what they did is they simply expanded the borders of the city of Jerusalem. They, they enlarged the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover so that you could eat the Passover inside the city of Jerusalem. Verse 14 again says, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus and the apostles are gathered together in the upper room. Uh, we have no indication in any of the Gospels that anyone other than Jesus and the disciples were eating the Last Supper together. It appears that Jesus is alone with just the disciples. None of the women who, who uh, follow him around, etc. This is a picture of, of Leonardo da Vinci's, of course, The Last Supper. Uh, and uh, uh, it depicts Jesus along with the 12 disciples. And some of you guys might go, no, 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 because one of the disciples is a woman. Uh, it's not a woman, it's John. Uh, that is John. Uh, in Leonardo da Vinci's depiction of, uh, uh, of that's Judas right over there. John over here. Peter's over on this side. Matthew's over there. Philip's over there. Um, and John's being depicted more in a, in a feminine way, but that's actually not uncommon in, ancient, uh, in uh, 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 pictures and, and uh, paintings at that time. Uh, through the Renaissance, many uh, Italian artists uh, uh, depicted men uh, with feminine qualities, especially because John is sitting in Jesus' right, in his bosom. He's, he's at Jesus' right hand. He's at his right side uh, there as well. And you can count, there's 12 of them there. So... Uh, according to Da Vinci, uh, uh, Judas is still at the meal at this point in time as well. Verse 14 again, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. So sorry, but Da Vinci's depiction is probably not the way they were actually sitting. When it says they were reclined, a particular word that's actually used, uh, and this is the best picture I could find. I don't like this picture perfectly either, but they were very likely sitting at a Roman table called a triclinium. Uh, triclinium refers to three sides. Uh, recline, you see that, the word recline and, and clinium. And try, three. Uh, there's three tables. The servants would come into the center of the three tables and then serve everyone and gathered around it. And, and they would be resting on, literally on pillows on their left side. So you can see they are pretty much on the left side. He's turned, he's turned that way. He's on his left side looking that direction there as well. Uh, now, uh, I suspect from the literature that I've studied as well that Jesus might actually be sitting more over here on this side of the table with John uh, to his right, uh, and we're not certain Judas has to be somewhat close by. We won't worry about all those details as well. But traditionally, of course, we put Jesus in the center of the table, etc. But it was probably some kind of table of this, uh, of this nature. These tables and these meals, as we discussed in the Gospel of Luke, are, are occasions for honor and shame and, 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 uh, and fellowship and community. And, and where you're sitting is important because it tells you your position and your place. We're going to look next week at the fact that the very next passage, after the Last Supper... After he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood poured out for you, the very next thing is, a dispute arose amongst the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. Hey, Jesus, I'm so sorry about, you know, you're going to die and all that stuff, but I'm greater, right? I mean, are you listening to what's going on? They're disputing about, but I believe the reason why they're disputing is because of the way they're sitting at the table. From the gospel accounts, it, it, it appears that Peter is not next to Jesus. And we all know Peter should be next to Jesus. But Peter motions with his hand, we're told. Hey, John, uh, who is it that's going to ask Jesus who's going to betray him? And the fact that Peter's motioning with his hands means he's not next to Jesus. He's having to ask somebody else. So da Vinci's picture is correct that John's probably apparently next to Jesus at his right hand. 
Um, but Peter's not, and that's going to create a problem for the disciples. Verse 14 through 16 again. When the hour had come, he reclined, reclined at the table with the apostles uh, with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus views his own death as the fulfillment of the Passover. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. And I'm not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, we often wonder, well, what does that mean? I'm not going to eat it again until it's fulfilled in, in, in the kingdom of God. And there could be a number of different interpretations of this. But I suspect that when we read Luke's narrative and Luke's story, Jesus is referring to the dinner he's going to have with them in, uh, um, later on Sunday night, recorded in Luke 24. The kingdom has come with Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm not going to eat this again until it's been fulfilled in, your, in the kingdom. And the kingdom's going to come Sunday night when he rises. And in Luke 24, he sits down and says, hey, you guys have anything to eat here? And they gathered fish. And they have a meal. Jesus has begun the kingdom in his death. And he, as the book of Revelation says, is the lamb that was slain. The Passover is all about the slaying of a lamb that, that uh, Sam read the passage for us earlier in the service as well. Verse 17, let's continue. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, uh, he said take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God, of God comes. Verse 19. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten and saying, This cup is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. This is my body given for you. To give one's body suggests dying in battle. This is my body. It's given for you. And I'm going I'm to give my body for you, Jesus says. I'm going to die in battle for the sake of you. Take this cup. The word cup is an often, often a, a, a metaphor for suffering. Uh, earlier, especially in Mark's gospel, uh, James and, um, and John come up to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, when we get to Jerusalem, can we sit on your right and on your left? Can we have the positions of power? Remember, they still think he's going to be enthroned as the king, not on the cross. Can we sit on your right and on your left? And Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm, I'm about to, to be baptized with? And the disciples, not understanding, say, of course we can. And Jesus says, sorry, maybe you can. Because they don't understand they are going to suffer the cup and the baptism of suffering. They, they don't get that. He, he says, you know what? You, you're right. You are. But to sit on my right and on my left has not been given to me to give. It's my father. Of course, we know that there's two thieves on his right, on his left, and the disciples don't really actually want those seats. What does this mean for us today? And what's the meaning of communion? All right, let me address a number of things. Number one, communion is a remembrance of the death and resurrection of Christ. Luke 22, verse 19, again, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of the Passover and the significance of Passover. One commentator says that a meal in memory of Jesus is one which celebrates and prolongs his lifestyle of justice and of serving the Father's food to all. See, do this in remembrance of me is not just at the altar. It's not just remembering that it's Christ's body and blood broken for us through which and by which we have life. 
But to do this in remembrance of him means to get up and to live a life of justice and serving, of welcoming anyone at the table, just like Jesus, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Luke, all these events happening at meals. And the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother comes out, Father, why are you giving my brother, my brother who did all the, why are you giving him a banquet? Because your brother was lost. And now he's found. We had to rejoice and be merry. To remember the table of the Lord is to remember his death and his resurrection that we might be saved. But to remember his death and resurrection by living it out and the lifestyle of justice. Secondly, communion expresses the unity in the body of Christ. It expresses the unity in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we come together in communion, we're coming together to proclaim the unity in Christ. In other words, communion is a remembrance of what Christ has done, but it's also a proclamation <clears throat> of what Christ has done. As often as you eat this bread and drink this, uh, and drink this uh, eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a proclamation. But that proclamation is a proclamation of the unity of the body of Christ. I think this is essential and, and essential because we often reflect on communion and what it means to me and of what Christ has done for me and of the fact that because he died, I live. And that's the remembrance. But the proclamation is that all these broken pieces of bread came from one loaf. And that one loaf is us. We are the body of Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, and I can go on. I mentioned earlier at the service, Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you're going to the altar and to present your offerings, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offerings at the altar. I don't want them. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offerings. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And he's going to tell the sheep that you're blessed and enter into life because I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, and you visited me. And Lord, when did we do that for you? And he says, well, whenever you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, you did that for me. It's a proclamation of the unity of the body of Christ, and that we are members of that body. And then what happens as a result of that, by the way, is that it now also then becomes a proclamation to the world to the world who finds out what we're doing at this communion table. That we're proclaiming the death of Christ and remembering what he's done for us. And we're also proclaiming the significance of that for our salvation and for us as a community. This becomes that life-transforming moment reminding us 
of who we really are. And as a result, it becomes a proclamation and a witness to the world. Number three, communion reminds us of the eternal banquet that's awaiting all of God's people. Some of us might come in this morning not having eaten breakfast because we didn't have any food. Surely that's the case for our brothers and sisters around the world and even other parts of the United States. And then we come and we eat and we're reminded there's going to be a day when we're not going to hunger any longer. Revelation 19 verse 9 says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 7 says, They will rest from their labors. The sun won't beat down on them, nor any scorching heat, because the Lamb and the Son of the Throne, He will guide them and lead them in the springs of the water of life. And they'll hunger no longer. Neither thirst anymore. Revelation 22 says, There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or death, because all things have passed away. Behold, He makes everything new. Revelation 22 says, We come... And we take from the tree of life and we drink from the river of life. No more death, no more mourning, no more hunger, no more strife, no more war, no more conflicts. Now very briefly here, uh, there are four or five different views of communion, and let me briefly address this. There's a Catholic view of communion that says that there's a real presence in the elements that in the bread and wine, Christ's body literally is. In, words, in, in Catholicism, the elements literally become the body and blood of the Lord. In the Lutheran view of communion, that there's a real presence of Christ with the elements. In, words, in Catholicism, that actually becomes the body of Jesus when the priest blesses it. But in Lutheranism, no, Christ's body, though, is present with the elements. In the Reformed and often the Presbyterian view of communion, there's a spiritual presence of Christ in communion. And there might not be a large distinction between Luther and the Reformed theology. It's there, but it's not. That there's a presence of Christ amongst the element. Now, there's a Baptist view. And if there's no presence of Christ, it's only a memorial. And we kind of hold ourselves in our congregation here, and we respect all. More that second, third view, that that Christ is somehow present in a greater way. He's present everywhere. He's present in a more particular way in my heart and in your heart. When two or three are gathered together, he's more present then than, than at other times. But in some way that Christ is present in the communion and with the communion elements. Not actually because it's his flesh, but somehow he's present amongst us. That's why we call communion a sacrament. I'm sorry, I, didn't, I thought I had that up on the screen, and I just realized I didn't. We call communion a sacrament. A sacrament means something sacred. It's a participation, in other words, in, in God's saving grace. We believe as Protestants that there are two sacraments, communion and baptism. And as a result, we believe that when we participate in these sacraments, baptism we do one time, communion we do regularly, Christ's presence is real and genuine here. The Westminster Confession of Faith says sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. It says that there's in every sacrament a spiritual relation, a, a union between the, thing, the sign and the thing signified. And the sacraments are means of grace. What does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? It's a common question that we, that we address. And it arises from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
And let me read briefly that passage and discuss it briefly. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, Paul says to the church in Corinth, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you've come together not for the better, but for the worse. That's, by the way, not a good thing if Paul's saying that about your church. Your, God, your, your meanings do more harm than good, some translations will say. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that, you do not, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, that was sarcasm, by the way, when you meet together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 21. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, Paul says, or Paul asks. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this thing? I will not praise you. Verse 27 now. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have, have died. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Paul is discussing the situation in Corinth, and very briefly what's happening apparently is the wealthy members of the church, who don't have to work on Sunday because they're wealthy, have congregated together and are eating and drinking and getting drunk before the poor apparently have actually even gotten to the meeting yet. And Paul's like, you guys got homes. You can go home and do this stuff. Do you shame those who have nothing, which is a reference to the poor, who have been working all day and had to come in on their lunch break? That's why we, we take communion together, because Paul says, no, we're going to do this together as a body. When Paul says you ought to recognize the body of the Lord, well, in light of what he says in chapter 10 and in chapter 11, the body of the Lord appears to be the us, the community of God's people. He says in chapter 10, the body of the Lord, which is the church. And the fact that they're shaming one another and leaving the poor out, Paul's answer is, you are disgracing the body of Christ. Because when we come together to communion, we're acknowledging the unity that we have in the body of Jesus. It appears then that we shouldn't come to the communion table if we're harboring bitterness and dissension and strife amongst the body of Christ. The question then becomes, well, who should take communion? And it's a, very, a, a more difficult question, I think, for us in the 21st century than it was for the church in the first century, and, and culture and, and historical circumstances have, have, have changed things. But some argue, and I think rightly so in many ways, that only Christians should take communion. Because non-Christians do not recognize Jesus, let alone the unity of the body of Jesus. And in doing so, they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. And that might be fine as well, but I would note that Paul seems to be indicating that it's the church who's eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. It's the Christians who have dissension and strife and, 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 and schisms and, and, and bitterness amongst themselves that they're eating and drinking judgment upon themselves by taking communion in an unworthy manner. Same time, I would simply say this. Communion is a sign of the covenant, isn't it? Right? When God makes a covenant with his people, he confirms it with a sign. And that sign is communion. Just as we would not baptize anyone who actually does not believe in Jesus, nor will we baptize their children if their parents aren't believing parents, 
then we would suggest that non-Christians should not partake of communion because they don't recognize what the sign even is. Now, at the same time, I think I would say, if a non-Christian were here and came into our service and didn't understand all that and came forward and took communion, that we would, we would let them. We might talk to them and explain them and use it as a teaching opportunity later if we could. I think historical circumstances are different today than they were in the first century. Warren Wiersbe makes this comment. He says, Paul did not say that we had to be worthy to partake of the supper, but only that we should partake in a worthy manner. At a communion service in Scotland, even he notes, a pastor noted a woman in a congregation who did not accept the bread and the cup from the elder, but instead she sat weeping. And the pastor left the table and went to her side and said, Take it, my dear. It's for sinners. Wonderful. You see, none of us are worthy if we wanted to go there. We're only worthy because of the forgiveness that's available in Christ. All right, last question, and I reserve the right to not to actually be the last question, but for right now, it'll be the last question. How often should we take communion? It appears that the early church took it regularly, uh, which appears to be weekly. Acts 2, verse 42, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayer. Acts 20, verse 7 says, on the first day of the week, we gather together to break bread. And to break bread is synonymous with having a meal. And there's almost no question amongst the biblical scholarly world at all that breaking bread in Acts 20 and in Acts 2 is a reference to communion. And it appears, some people argue, well, why do you do it on Sunday? Um, uh, there's no evidence in the New Testament that, they, that, that communion, that, that the Sabbath day is Sunday, right? Some of you have heard denominations may, may, make this argument. And the answer is this. The New Testament doesn't argue that, the, that Sunday is a Sabbath day because it's assumed. Because everybody was doing it. It appears from the very beginning, Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, that Sunday, they gathered together to break bread. It appears to be they gathered together to take communion. It appears that the Sabbath day in the Jewish world of Saturday was changed in the Christian church from the very beginning to Sunday to honor the resurrection of Jesus. As often as you gather together, eat this bread and drink this cup. You do this in remembrance of me. So what's the best day to do it? And I think the answer is either Friday or Sunday. We either do this on Friday, the day he died, because it's a memorial of the death of Christ, or we do it on Sunday, the day he rises. And Sunday is the day he rises. Because without the resurrection, the death is meaningless. Now, mind you, there's no resurrection without the crucifixion, but there's also a meaningless crucifixion, another just victim of Rome without a resurrection. Remember, Passover was Friday, but beginning Friday night and Saturday becomes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's not a coincidence that Jesus rises from the dead as the bread of life during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Get it? He's the bread that rises. That's why we take communion with leavened bread. Now, of course, Catholics believe that because it's actually the body of Jesus... Uh, uh, there, that, that it should be done on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And this became one of the issues in the Reformation. Uh, the, ritu uh, the ritualism that was inherent within the system and, and, and all that, the, the reformers, Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and, and all the rest, uh, were, were, were responding to the ritualism in the Catholic Church in the 1500s and to some of the abuses in the Catholic Church. And one of the things that was happening in the Catholic Church, which many of you may not be aware of, is the fact that communion was taken 
by the congregation of the bread only. For 700 years, from the year 1215 or so, till 1962, if you were Roman Catholic, you were not allowed to drink the wine. You could take communion of only one kind of the bread. So when Luther and others before him said, we want to reinstate communion as a central part of our church, but we want communion of both kinds. But one of the things that happened in that was, uh, they, we want to get away from the ritualism of, of, of Catholicism, and so they began, movements later on began saying, well, the Bible is more important than communion. And so we want our services to revolve around the Bible and not to revolve around communion. And that's why many churches today take communion on an irregular basis. Because it's the belief became the proclamation of the word is more important than communion. And I'm not so bold to say that. There's no way I'm going to be that bold to say that the preaching of the word is more important than communion. I'm not sure we're going to we're going to win on either one of those arguments, by the way. But that's the reason why communion became this irregular thing. Now, in our denomination, if you're not aware, uh, uh, we believe that communion is a regular thing, should be done on a weekly basis, but our denomination says it must be done at least once a month. Right? So we take communion. One last question. Sorry, I knew there was another one about it on the bottom of my notes. Sorry. And that says, what about the form of communion? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's Coca-Cola or grape juice, wine or bread, bread or crackers. It doesn't matter. What matters is our hearts. I mentioned this in a sermon a couple months ago that um, the Protestant movement was to get away from the ritual or the ritualism, and so we removed the ritual. And my answer is, no, you don't remove the ritual. We remove the ritualism. The ritualism is a matter of my heart. Whether I just take this communion as a matter of rote ritual, and I'm just doing it because I'm doing it, and I don't reflect upon it, I just did a ritual that was meaningless. But just because I was, ritual, had, was filled with ritualism there shouldn't deprive you of the opportunity to take communion today. And we as a congregation then need to get together and this is our second time this month, whether we do it weekly, monthly, it doesn't matter. Every time we do it, we just need to make sure that we're not doing it as a ritual in the sense of a ritualism, but as a ritual that's deep and rich in meaning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We're going to take communion in just a few minutes. And I probably went way too long and lost sight of all the focus of what we needed here this morning. But we are not worthy to come to this table in and of ourselves, but because of the blood of the Lamb, we are worthy. And so we confess our sins. The very sins that keep us from coming to this table, we confess and acknowledge that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and therefore we come. Maybe we should be weeping in our pews but we still need to come. We weep at the disunity of the church around the world. We weep at the fact that the devil has infiltrated us with false prophets and false teachers and schisms and, and dissension and anger and frustration and bitterness and jealousy and envy and pride. And we weep at that because this is not what you wanted. And then we repent and say, Lord, help us not to contribute to that, but to be people who contribute to the advancement of the kingdom of God and the unity of the brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And we ask that you'll be honored and pleased in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.